Chapter 6 of Badge of Infamy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey. Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater. www.prometheusradiotheater.com. Six. Research. There had been a council the night following the death of Harriet Lynn. Somehow the word had spread through the villages, and the chiefs had assembled in Jake's village. But they brought no solution, and in the long run had been forced to accept Doc's decision. I'm not going to retire and hide, he'd told them, surprised at his own decision, but grimly determined. You need me, and I need you. I'll move every day in hopes the lobby police won't find me, but I won't quit. Now he was packing the things he most needed and getting ready to move. The small bottles in which he was trying to grow his cultures would need warmth. He shoved them into an inner pocket and began surveying what must be left. He was heading for his tractor when another battered machine drove up. It had a girl of about fourteen with tears streaming down her face. She held out a pleading hand and her voice was scared. It's... it's Mama. Where? Leibniz. Leibniz was near enough. Doc started his tractor, motioning for the girl to lead the way. The little dwelling she led him to was at the edge of the village, looking more poverty-stricken than most. Chris Ryan and three of the medical lobby police were inside, waiting. The girl's mother was tied to the bed with a collection of medical instruments laid out, but apparently the threat had been enough. No actual injury had been inflicted. Probably none had been intended seriously. I knew you'd answer that kind of call, Chris said coldly. He grinned, sickly. They'd wasted no time. I hear it's more than you'll do, Chris. Congratulations. My patient died. You're lucky. She was certainly dead when my men took her picture. The print shows the death grimace clearly. Pretty. Frame it and keep it to comfort you when you feel lonely, he snapped. She struck him across the mouth with the handle of her gun. Then she twisted out through the door quickly, heading for the tractor that had been camouflaged to look like those used by the villagers. The three police led him behind her. A shout went up, and people began to rush onto the village street, but they were too late. By the time they reached Southport, Doc could see a trail of battered tractors behind, but there was nothing more the people could do. Chris had her evidence and her prisoner. Judge Ben Wilson might have been Jake's brother. He was older and grayer, but the same expression lay on his face. He must have been the family black sheep, since his father had been president of Space Lobby. Instead of inheriting the position, Wilson had remained on Mars, safely out of the family's way. He dropped the paper he was reading to frown at Chris. This the fellow? She began formal charges, but he cut them off. Your lawyer already had all that drawn up. I've been expecting you, doctor. Doctor, <laughs> you'd do a lot better home somewhere raising a flock of babies. Well, young fellow, so you're Feldman. Okay, your trial comes up day after tomorrow. Be ashamed to lock you in a Southport jail, a man of your importance. We'll just keep you here in the pending trial room. It's a lot more comfortable. Chris had been boiling slowly, and now she seemed to blow her safety valve. 
Judge Wilson, your methods are your own business in local affairs, but this involves Earth Medical Lobby. I demand— Tush, tush! The judge stared at her reprovingly. Young woman, you won't demand anything. This is Mars. If Space Lobby can stand me, I guess our friends over at Medical will have to. Or should I hold a trial right now and find Feldman innocent for lack of evidence? You wouldn't! Chris cried. Then her face sobered suddenly. I apologize. Medical is pleased to leave things in your hands, of course. Wilson smiled. Court's closed for today. Doc, I'll show you your cell. It's right next to my study, so I'm heading there anyhow. He began shucking his robe while Chris went out with the police, her voice sharp and continual. The cell was both reasonably escape-proof and comfortable, Doc saw, and he tried to thank the judge. But the old man waved it aside. Forget it. I just like to see that little termagant taken down. But don't count on my being soft. My methods may be a bit unusual. I always did like the courtroom scenes in the old books by that fellow Smith. But Space Lobby never had any reason to reverse my decisions. Anything you need? Sure, Doc told him, grinning in spite of his bitterness. Good biology lab and an electron microscope. Hmm, how about a good optical mic and some stains? Just got them in on the last shipment. Figure they were meant for you, anyhow, since Jake Mullins asked me to order them. He went out and came back with the box almost at once. He snorted at Doc's incredulous thanks and moved off, his bedroom slippers slapping against the hard floor. Doc stared after him. If he were a friend of Jake, willing to invent some excuse to get a microscope here... But it didn't matter. Friend or foe, his death sentence would be equally fatal. And there were other things to be thought of now. The little microscope was an excellent one, though only a monocular. Doc's hands trembled as he drew his cultures out and began making up a slide. The sun offered the best source of light near the window, and he adjusted the instrument. Something began to come into view, but too faintly to be really visible. He remembered the stains, trying to recall his biology courses. More by luck than skill, his fourth try gave him results. Under two thousand powers, he could just see details. There were dozens of cells in his impure culture, but only one seemed unfamiliar. It was a long, worm-like thing, sharpened at both ends, with the three separate nuclei that were typical of Martian life forms. Nearby were a host of little rod-like squiggles just too small to see clearly. Martian life. No Martian bug had ever proved harmful to men. Yet this was no mutated cell or virus from Earth. It was a new disease, completely different from all others. It was one where all Earth's centuries of experience with bacteria would be valueless. The first Martian disease. Unless this was simply some accidental contamination of his culture— not common to the other samples. He worked on until the light was too faint before putting the microscope aside. By the time the trial commenced, however, he was sure of the cause of the disease. It was Martian. Crude as his cultures were, they had proved that. The little courtroom was filled mostly from the villages. Lou was there, along with others he had come to know. Then the sight of Jake caught Doc's eyes. The darn fool had no business there. He could get too closely mixed into the whole mess. Court's in session, Wilson announced. Doc, you represented by counsel? Jake's voice answered. Your Honor, 
I represent the defendant. I think you'll find my credentials in order. Chris started to protest, but Wilson grinned. Never lost your standing in spite of that little fracas thirty years ago, so far as I know. But the police thought you were a witness when you came walking in. Figured you were giving up. I never said so, Jake answered. Chris was squirming angrily, but the florid man acting as counsel for the medical lobby shook his head, bending over to whisper in her ear. He straightened. No objection to counsel for the defense. We recognize his credentials. You're a fool, Matthews, the judge told him. Jake was smarter than half the rest of legal lobby before he went native. Still can tie your tail to a can. Okay, let's start things. I'm too old to dawdle. Doc lost track of most of what happened. This was totally unlike anything on earth, though it might have been in keeping with the general casualness of the villages. Maybe the ritualistic routine of the lobbies was driving those who could resist to the opposite extreme. Chris was the final witness. Matthews drew comment of Feldman's former crime from her, and Jake made no protest, though Wilson seemed to expect one. Then she began sewing his shroud. There wasn't a fact that managed to emerge without slanting, though technically correct. Jake sat quietly, smiling faintly, and making no protests. He got up lazily to cross-examine Chris. Dr. Ryan, when Daniel Feldman was examined by the captain of the Navajo after arriving at Mars Station, did you identify him then as having been Dr. Daniel Feldman? She glanced at Matthews who seemed puzzled but unconcerned. "'That's correct,' she admitted. "'But—' "'And you later saw him delivered to the surface of Mars. Is that also correct?' When she assented, Jake hesitated. Then he frowned. "'What did you do then? Did you report him? Or send anyone to look after him, or anything like that?' "'Certainly not,' she answered. "'He was no—' You did absolutely nothing about him after you identified him and saw him delivered here. You're quite sure of that. I did nothing. Jake stood quietly for a moment, then shrugged. No more questions. Matthews finished things in a plea for the salvation of all humanity from the danger of such men as Daniel Feldman. He was looking smug, as was Chris. Wilson turned to Jake. Has the defense anything to say? Few things, Your Honor. Jake stood up, suddenly looking certain and pleased. We are happy to admit everything factual the lobby had testified. Daniel Feldman performed a surgical operation on Harriet Lynn in the village of Einstein. But when has it been illegal for a member of the medical profession to perform an operation even with small chance of success, within an accepted area for such operation. There has been no evidence adduced that any crime or act of even unethical conduct was committed. That brought Chris and Matthews to their feet. Wilson was relaxed again, looking as if he'd swallowed a whole cage of canaries. He banged his gavel down. Jake picked up two ragged and dog-eared volumes from his table. Case of Harding versus Southport, 2043, establishes that a lobby is responsible for any member on Mars. It is also responsible for informing the authorities of any criminal conduct on the part of its members 
or any former member known to it. Failure to report shall be considered an admission that the lobby recognizes the member as one in good standing and accepts responsibility for that member's conduct. At the time Daniel Feldman arrived, Dr. Christina Ryan was the highest appointed representative of medical lobby in Southport with full authority. She identified Feldman as having been a doctor without stipulating any change in status. She made no further report to any authority concerning Daniel Feldman's presence here. It seems obvious that medical lobby at Southport thereby accepted Daniel Feldman as a doctor in good standing for those who conduct the lobby accepted full responsibility. Wilson studied the book Jake held out and nodded. Seems pretty clear-cut to me, he agreed, passing the book on to Matthews. There's still the charge that Dr. Feldman operated outside a hospital. No reason he shouldn't, Jake said. He handed over the other volume. This is the charter for medical lobby on Mars. Medical lobby agrees to perform all necessary surgical and medical services for the planet, though at the signing of this charter there was no hospital on Mars. Necessarily, medical lobby agreed to perform surgery outside of any hospital then. But to make it plainer, there's a later paragraph, page 181, that defines each hospital zone as extending not less than three nor more than one hundred miles. Einstein is about 110 miles from the nearest hospital at Southport, so Einstein comes under the original charter provisions. Dr. Feldman was forced by charter provisions to protect the good name of his lobby by undertaking any necessary surgery in Einstein. He waited until Matthews had scanned that book, then took it back and began packing a big bag. Doc saw that his possessions and the microscope were already in the bag. The old man paid no attention to the arguments of Matthews before the bench. Abruptly, Wilson pounded his gavel. This court finds that Dr. Daniel Feldman is qualified to practice all the arts and skills of the medical profession on Mars, and that he acted ethically in the performance of his duties in the case of the deceased, Harriet Lynn he ruled. The costs of the case shall be billed to medical lobby of Southport. He took off his robe and moved rapidly toward his private quarters. Court was closed. Doc got up shakily, not daring to believe fully what he had heard. He started toward Jake, trying to avoid bumping into Chris, but she would not be avoided. She stood in front of him, screaming accusations and threats that reminded him of the only fight they'd ever had during their brief marriage. When she ran down, he finally met her eyes. "'You're a hell of a doctor,' he told her harshly. "'You spend all your time fighting me when there's a plague out there that may be worse than any disease we've ever known. Take a look at what lies under the black specks on your corpses. You'll find the first Martian disease.' And maybe if you begin working on that now, you can learn to be a real doctor in time to do something about it. But I doubt it. She fell back from him then. Research. You've been doing unauthorized research. Prove it, he suggested. But you'd be a lot smarter to try some yourself, and to hell with your precious rules. He followed Jake out to the tractor. Surprisingly, the old man was sweating now. He shook his head at Doc's look and his grin was uncertain. "'Matthews is an incompetent,' he said. "'They could have had you, Doc. That charter is so sloppy a man can prove anything by it. 
and building a hospital here did bring in Earth rules. Wilson went out on a limb letting you go, but I guess we got away with it. Let's get out of here. Doc climbed into the tractor more soberly. They had escaped, this time. But there would be another time, and he was pretty sure that would be Chris's round. He had no intention of giving up his research. End recording. Chapter 7 of Badge of Infamy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey. Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater. www.prometheusradiotheater.com Seven. Plague. Dr. Feldman leaned back from his microscope and lighted another bracky weed. He glanced about the room and sighed wearily. Maybe he'd been better off when he had no friends and couldn't risk the safety of others in an effort to do research that was the highest crime on two worlds. The evidence of his work was hidden thirty feet beyond his former laboratory in Jake's village, with a tunnel that led from another root cellar. The theory was the old one, that the best place to avoid discovery was where you had already been discovered. If their spies had identified his former hangout, they'd never expect to have him set up research nearby. It was a nice theory, but he wasn't sure of it. Jake looked up from a cot where he'd been watching the improvised culture incubator. Stop tearing yourself to bits, Doc. We know the danger, and we're still darn glad to have you working on this. I'm trying to put myself together into a whole man, Doc told him, but I seem to come out wholly a fool. Yeah, sure. Sometimes it takes a fool to get things done. Wise men wait too long for the right time. How's the bug hunt? Doc grunted in disgust and swung back to the microscope. Then he gave up as his tired eyes refused to focus. Why don't you people revolt? They tried it twice but they were just a bunch of pariahs shipped here to live in peonage. They couldn't do much. The first time Earth cut off shipments and starved them. Next time, the villages had the answer to that, but the cities had to fight for Earth or starve, so they whipped us. And there's always the threat that Earth could send over unmanned war rockets loaded with fissionables. So it's hopeless. So nothing. The lobbies are poisoning themselves like cutting off medical service until they cut themselves out of a job. It's just a matter of time. Go back to the bugs, Doc. Doc sighed and reached for his notes. I wish I knew more Martian history. I've been wondering whether this bug may not have been what killed off the old Martians. Something had to do it, the way they disappeared. I wish I knew enough to make an investigation of those ruins out there. Durwood. Jake had propped himself up on an elbow staring at Doc in surprise. Doc scowled. Clive Durwood, you mean? The archaeologist who dug up what little we know about the ruins? Yeah. Before he went back to Earth and started living off his lectures. He came here again three years ago and dropped dead in Edison on the way to some other ruins. Heart failure, they called it. Though it was more like the two old farmers who ran themselves to death last month. <laughs> 
I saw him when they buried him. His face looked funny. And I think he had those little specks, though I may remember wrong. He grimaced. Mars is tough, Doc. Has to be. Some of the plant seeds Durwood found in the ruins grew. Maybe your bugs waited a million years till we came along. What about the farmers? Did they meet Durwood? Jake nodded. Must have. He lived in their village most of the time. Doc went through his notes. He'd asked for reports on all deaths, and he finally found the account. The two old men had been nervous and fidgety for weeks. They were twins, living by themselves, and nobody paid much attention. Then one morning, both were seen running wildly in circles. The village managed to tie them up, but they died of exhaustion shortly thereafter. It wasn't a pretty picture. The disease might have an incubation period of nearly fifteen years, judging by the length of time it had taken to hit Durwood. It must spread from person to person during an early contagious stage, leaving widening circles behind Durwood and those first infected. When matured, any other sickness would set it off, with few symptoms of its own. But without help, it still killed its victims, apparently driving them madly toward frenzied physical effort. He studied the culture on a slide again. He'd tried Koch's method to get a pure strain, splattering the bugs onto a native starchy root and plucking off individual colonies. About twenty specimens had been treated with every chemical he could find. So far he'd found a few things that seemed to stop their growth, but nothing that killed them, except stuff far too harsh to use in living tissue. He had nearly forty cases of deaths that showed symptoms now, and he went back over them, looking for anything in common that went back ten to twenty years before death. There were no rashes nor blisters. A few had had apparent colds, but such were too common to mean anything. Only one thing appeared about fourteen years before their deaths. The people interviewed about the victims might be vague about most things, but they remembered the time when Jim had the jumping headache. Jake, Doc called, what's a jumping headache? Most people seem to have it sometime or other, but I haven't run across a case of it. Sure you have, Doc. Mamie Brander's little girl a few weeks ago. Feels like your pulse is going to rip your skull off right here. Can't eat because chewing drives you crazy. Back of your head, neck, and shoulders swell up for about a week. Then it goes away. Then it goes away for fourteen years until it comes back to kill. Doc stared at his charts in sudden horror. It was a new disease, thought to be some virus but not considered dangerous. Selznick's migraine, according to medical usage, you treated it with hot pads and anodyne, and it went away easily enough. He'd seen hundreds of such cases on Earth. There must be millions who had been hit by it. The patent medicine branch of the lobby had even brought out something called no-grain to use for self-treatment. Something important, Jake wanted to know. Feldman nodded. How much weight do you swing in other villages, Jake? People sort of do me favors when I ask. Jake admitted, like swiping those medical journals from Northport for you, or like Molly Badger getting that job as maid to spy on Chris Ryan. Name it, I'll do my best. Doc had a vague idea of village politics, but he had more important things to think of. Most of his foul mood had disappeared with the clue he'd stumbled on, and his chief worry now was to clinch the facts. Feldman considered the problem. I want to report on every case of jumping headache in every village, who had it, when, and how old they were. This place first, but every village you can reach. 
and I'll want someone to take a letter to Chris Ryan. Jake frowned at that, but went out to issue instructions. Doc sat down at a battered old typewriter. Writing Chris might do no good, but some warning had to be gotten through to Earth, where the vast resources of medical lobby could be thrown into the task of finding the cause and cure of the disease. The connection with Selznick's migraine had to be reported. If something could blast the lobby into action, it wouldn't matter quite so much what they did to him. He wasn't foolish enough to expect gratitude from them, but he was getting used to the idea that his days were numbered. The plague was more important than what happened to him. The letter had been dispatched by the time Jake returned. Here's the dope for this village. Everybody accounted for except you. Never had it, Jake. Feldman went down the list. Most of it fourteen years ago. That fits. About the only exceptions are the kids who seem to get it between the ages of two and three. Eighty-seven out of ninety-one. He stared at the figures sickly. Most of the village not only had the plague, but must be near the end of the incubation period. It looked as if most of the village would be dead before another year passed. Bad, Jake asked. The first symptom of Martian fever. The old man whistled, the lines around his eyes tightening. Must be me, he decided. I'm the guy who must have brought it here. I used to spend a lot of time with Durwood at his diggings. There was a constant commotion all that day and the next as runners went out to the villages and came back with reports. The variation from village to village was only slight. Most of Mars seemed to have advanced cases of Martian fever. Without animals for investigation and study, real research was difficult. Doc also needed an electron microscope. He was reasonably sure that the disease must travel through the nerves, but he had found no proof beyond the hard lump at the base of the neck. There it was a fair-sized organism. Elsewhere, he could find nothing until the black specks developed. His eyes ached from trying to see more than was visible in the microscope. The tantalizing suggestions of filaments around the nuclei might be the form of plague that was contagious. They might even be the true form of the bug, with a bigger cell only a transition stage. There were a number of diseases that involved complicated changes in the organisms that caused them, but he couldn't be sure. He finally buried his head in his hands, trying to do by pure thought what he couldn't do in any other way, and even there he lacked training. He was a doctor, not a xenobiologist. Research training had been taboo in school, except for a favored few. The reports continued to come in, confirming the danger. They seemed to have the worst plague on their hands in all human history, and nobody who could do anything about it even knew of it. Molly reports that your letter got some results, Jake reported. Chris Ryan brought home one of the electron microscopes and a bunch of equipment from the hospital pathology room. Think she'll get anywhere? Doc doubted it. Damn it. He hadn't meant for her to try it, though she might have authority for routine experiments. But it was like her to refuse to pass on the word without trying to prove her own suspicion of him first. He tried to comfort himself with the fact that some men were immune, or seemed so. About three out of a hundred showed no signs. If that immunity was hereditary, it might save the race. If not... Jake came in at twilight with a grim face. More news from Molly. The lobby is starting out to comb every village with a fault finder starting here, and this hole will show up like a sore thumb. Better start packing. We gotta be out of here in less than an hour.
End recording. Chapter 8 of Badge of Infamy This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater www.prometheusradiotheater.com 8. Fool Three days later, Doc saw his first runner. The tractor was churning through the sand just before sundown, heading toward another one-night stand at a new village. Lou was driving, while Doc and Jake brooded silently in the back, paying no attention to the colors that were blazoned over the dunes. The cat-and-mouse game was getting to Doc. There was no real assurance that the village they were approaching might not be the target the lobby had chosen for the next investigation. Lou braked the tractor to a sudden halt and pointed. A figure was running frantically over one of the low dunes with a little red sun behind him. He seemed headed toward them, but as he drew nearer they could see that he had no definite direction. He simply ran, pumping his legs frantically as if all the devils of hell were after him. His body swayed from side to side in exhaustion, but his arms and legs pumped on. "'Stop him!' Jake ordered, and Lou swung the tractor. It halted squarely in the runner's path, and the figure struck against it and toppled. The legs went on pumping, digging into the dirt and gravel, but the man was too far gone to rise. Jake and Lou shoved him through the doors into the tractor, and Doc yanked off his aspirator. The man was giving vent to a kind of ululating cry, weakened now almost to a whine that rose and fell with the motion of his legs. Sweat had once streaked his haggard face, but it was dry and blanched to a pasty gray. Doc injected enough narcotic to quiet a maddened bull. It had no effect except to upset the rhythm of the arms and legs. It took five more minutes for the man to die. The specks were larger this time the size of periods in twelve-point type. The lump at the base of the skull was as big as a small hen's egg. "'From Edison, like the others so far. Jack Cooley,' Jake answered Doc's question. "'Durwood spent a lot of time here on his first expedition, so it's getting the worst of it.' Doc pulled the aspirator mask back over the man's face, and they carried him out and laid him on a low dune. They couldn't risk returning the corpse to its people." This was only the primary circle of infection, direct from Durwood. The second circle could be ten times as large as the infection spread from one to a few to many. So far, it was localized, but it wouldn't stay that way. Doc climbed slowly out of the tractor, lugging his small supplies of equipment, while Jake made arrangements for them to spend the night in a deserted house but the figure of the runner and his own failures to find more about the disease kept haunting Doc. He began setting up his equipment grimly. "'Better get some sleep,' Jake suggested. "'You're a mite more tired than you think. Anyhow, I thought you told me you couldn't do any more with what you got.' Feldman looked at the supplies he had spread out and shook his head wearily. 
He'd been over every chemical and combination a dozen times, without results that showed in the limited magnification of the optical mic. He snapped the case shut and hit the rude table with the heel of his hand. There are other supplies. Jake, do you have any signal to get in touch with Molly at the Ryan's house? Three raps on the rear left window. I'll get Lou. No. Doc came to his feet, reaching for his jacket. They're looking for three men now. It's safer if I go alone. And I'm the only one who knows what supplies are needed. With luck, I may even get the electron mic. Got a gun I can borrow? Jake found one somewhere, an old revolver with a few loads. He began protesting, but Doc overruled him sharply. Three men could no more fight off the police than one, if they were spotted. He swung toward the tractor. You'd better start spreading the word on everything we know. If people realize they're already safe or doomed, it'll be better than having them go crazy to avoid contagion. Most of the villages know already, Jake told him. And damn it, get back here, Doc. If you can't make it, turn tail quick, and we'll think of something else. Southport seemed normal enough as Doc drove through its streets. The stereo house was open, and the little shops were brightly lighted. He stopped once to pull a copy of Southport's little newspaper from a dispenser. All was quiet on its front page, too. As usual, the facts were buried inside. The editorial was pouring too much oil on the waters in its lauding of the role of medical lobby on Mars for no apparent reason. The death notices no longer listed the cause of death. Medical knew something was up, at least, and was worried. He parked the tractor behind Chris's house and slipped to the proper window. Everything was seemingly quiet there. At his knock, the shade was drawn back, and he caught a brief glimpse of Molly looking out. A moment later, she opened the rear lock to let him into the kitchen. Shh. She's still up, I think. What can I do, Doc? He tried to smile at her. Hide me until it's safe to get into her laboratory. I've got to... The inner kitchen door was kicked open, and Chris stood beyond it, holding a cocked gun in her hand. It took longer than I expected, Dan, she said quietly. But after your letter, I knew you'd swallow the bait. You bloody fool. Did you really believe I'd start doing research here just because of your imaginings? He slumped slowly back against the sink. So this is a fool's errand, then. There never was any equipment here? The equipment's here. In my office. I guessed your spies would report it, so it had to be here. But it won't help you now, pariah Feldman. He came from his braced position against the sink, like a spring uncoiling. He expected her to shoot, but hoped the surprise would ruin her aim. Then it was too late, and his boot hit the gun savagely, knocking it from her hand. Life in the villages had hardened him surprisingly. She was comparatively helpless in his hands. A few minutes later, he had her bound securely with surgical tape Molly brought him. She raged furiously in the chair where he'd dumped her, then gave up. They'll get you, Daniel Feldman. Surprisingly, there was no rage in her voice now. You won't get away from us. The planet isn't big enough. I got away from your trial, he reminded her and I got away and lived when you left me without a chance on the ground of the spaceport. She laughed harshly. You got away, then. You fool. Who do you think gave you the extra battery so you could live long enough to be helped at the spaceport? 
Who hired a fool like Matthews so you wouldn't get the death sentence you deserved? Who let you get away as an herb doctor for months before you set yourself up as God and a traitor to mankind again? It shook him, as it was probably intended to do. Had she known about the extra battery? He'd always assumed that Ben had returned to give it to him. But in that case, Chris couldn't know of it. Then he hardened himself again. In the old days, she'd always had one trump card he couldn't beat and hadn't expected. But too much was involved for games now. Any police around, Molly? he asked. Molly came back a minute later to report that everything looked clear and to show him where the equipment had been set up in Chris's office. It was all there, including the electron mic, a beautiful little portable model. There was even a small incubator with its own heat source into which he immediately transferred the little bottles he'd been keeping warm against his skin. Most of the equipment had never been unpacked, which made loading it onto his tractor ridiculously easy. "'Better come with me now, Molly,' he suggested at last. Then he turned to Chris, who was watching him with almost no expression. You can wriggle your chair to the phone in half an hour, I guess. Knock the phone off and yell for help. It's better than you deserve, unless you really did leave me that battery. You won't get away with it, she told him again, calmly this time. No, he admitted. Probably not. But maybe the human race will if I have time to find an answer to the plague you won't see under your nose. But you won't get away with it either. In the long run... Your kind never do. Molly was sniffling as they drove away. It had probably been the best life she'd known, Doc supposed. Chris could be kind to menials. But now Molly's work was done, and she'd have to disappear into the villages. He let her off at the first village and drove on alone. He was itching to get to the microscope now, hardly able to wait through the long journey back to Jake. His impatience grew with each mile. Finally, he gave up. He swung the tractor into a small gully between sand dunes, left the motor idling, and pulled down the shades the villagers used for blackout traveling. There was power enough for the mic here, and the cab was big enough for what he had to do. He mounted the mic on the tractor seat and began laying out the collection of smears and cultures he had brought. It had been years since he'd made a film for the electron mic, but he found it all came back to him as he worked. His hands were sweating with tension as he inserted the first film into the chamber. He had the magnetic lenses set for 20,000 power, but a quick glance showed it was too weak. He raised the power to 50,000. The filaments were there, clear and distinct. He turned on the little tape recorder that had been part of Chris's equipment and set the microphone where he could dictate into it without stopping to make clumsy notes. He readjusted the focus carefully, carrying on a running commentary. Then he gasped. Each of the little filaments carried three tiny darker sections— each was a cell, complete in itself, with a typical Martian triple nucleus. He put a film with a tiny section of the nerve tissue from a corpse into the chamber next, and again a quick glance at the screen was enough. The filaments were there, thickly crowded among nerve cells. They did travel along the nerves to reach the base of the brain before the larger lump could form. A specimen from one of the black specks was even more interesting. The filaments were there, but some were changed, or changing, into tiny round cells, also with the triple dark spots of nuclei. Those must be the final form that was released to infect others. 
Probably at first these multiplied directly in epithelial tissue, so there was a rapid contagion of infection. Eventually they must form the filaments that invaded the nerves and caused the brief bodily reaction that was Selznick's migraine. Then the body adapted to them, and they began to incubate slowly, developing into the large cells he had first seen. When ripe, the big cells broke apart into millions of the tiny round ones that went back to the nerve endings, causing the black spots and killing the host. He knew his enemy now, at least. He reached for the controls, increasing the magnification. He would lose resolution, but he might find something more at the extreme limits of the mic. Something wet and cold gushed into his face. He jerked back, trying to wipe it off, but it was already evaporating, and there was a thick, acrid odor in the cab. He grabbed for his aspirator, then tried to reach the airlock, but the paralysis was already spreading through him, and he toppled to the floor before he could escape. When he came to, it was morning outside, and Chris was waiting inside the cab with two big lobby policemen. A hypo in her hand must have been what revived him. She touched the electron microscope with something like affection. The lobby technicians did a good job on this, don't you think, Dan? I warned you, but you wouldn't listen. And now we've even got your own taped words to prove you were doing forbidden research. Fool! She shook her head pityingly as the tractor began moving with two others toward Southport. You and your phony diseases. A little skin disorder, Selznick's migraine, and a few cases of psychosis to make a new disease. Do you think the medical lobby can't check on such simple things? Or didn't you expect us to hear of your open talk of revolt and realize you were planning to create some new germ to wipe out the earth forces? Maybe those runners of yours were real, mass murderer. She drew out another hypo and shoved the needle into his arm. Necrosynth enough to keep him unconscious for twenty-four hours. He started to curse her, but the drug acted before he could complete the thought. End recording Chapter 9 of Badge of Infamy this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater www.prometheusradiotheater.com Nine. Judgment. Doc woke to see sunlight shining through a heavily barred window that must be in the official Southport jail. He waited a few minutes for his head to clear, and then sat up. Necrosynth left no hangover, at least. The sound of steps outside was followed by the squeak of a key in the lock. Fifteen minutes, Judge Wilson, the voice said. Thank you, officer. Wilson came into the cell, carrying a tray of breakfast and a copy of the Northport Gazette. He began unloading bracky weeds from his pocket while Doc attacked the breakfast. "'They tossed the book at you, Doc,' he said. "'You haven't got a chance, and there's nothing the villages can do. Trial's set for tomorrow at Northport, and it's in closed session.' 
We can't get you off this time. Doc nodded. Thanks for coming, even if there's nothing you can do. I've been living on borrowed time for a year anyhow, so I have no right to kick. But who's we? The villages. I've been part of their organization for years. The old man sighed heavily. You might say a revolution has been going on since I can remember, though most villagers don't know it. We've just been waiting our time. Now we've stopped waiting and the rifles will be coming out. Rifles made in village shops. The villages are going to rebel even if we're all dead of plague in a month. Doc Feldman nodded and reached for the bracky. He knew this was their way of trying to make him feel his work hadn't been for nothing, and he was grateful for Wilson's visit. It was a good year for me. Damn good. But time is running short. I'd better brief you on the latest on the plague. Wilson began making notes until Doc was finished. Finally, he got up as steps sounded from the hall. Anything else? Just a guess. A lot of Earth germs can't live in Mars' normal flesh. Maybe this can't live in Earth normal. Tell them so long for me. So long, Doc. He shook hands briefly and was waiting at the door when the guard opened it. An hour later, the lobby police took Feldman to the Northport shuttle rocket. They had some trouble on the way. A runner cut down the street with the crowds frantically rushing out of his way. Terror was reaching the cities already. Doc flashed a look at Chris. Mob hysteria. Like flying saucers and wriggly tops, I suppose, he asked before the guard could stop him. They locked his legs but left his hands free in the rocket. He unfolded the paper Wilson had brought and buried his face in it. Then he swore. They were explaining the runners as a case of mob hysteria. Northport was calmer. Apparently they had yet to have first-hand experience with the plague. But now nothing seemed quite real to Doc, even when they locked him into the big Northport jail. The whole ritual of the lobbies seemed like a fantasy after the villages. It snapped back into focus, however, when they led him into the trial room of the medical lobby building. It was a smaller version of his trial on Earth. Fear washed in by association. The complete lack of humanity in the procedure was something from a half-remembered and horrible past. The presiding officer asked the routine question, Is the prisoner represented by counsel? Blaine, the dapper little prosecutor, arose quickly. The prisoner is a pariah, Sir Magistrate. Very well. The court will accept the protective function for the prisoner. You may proceed. I'll be the judge. I'll be the jury. And prosecution and defense. It made for a lot less trouble. Of course, if Space Lobby had asserted interest, it would have gone to a supposedly neutral court. But as usual, Space was happy to leave it in the hands of medical. The tape was played as evidence. Doc frowned. The words were his, but there had been a lot of editing that subtly changed the imports of his notes. I protest, he challenged. It's not an accurate version. The lobby magistrate turned a wooden face to him. Does the prisoner have a different version to introduce? No, but... The evidence is accepted. One of the prisoner's six protests will be charged against him. Blaine smiled smoothly and held up a small package. We wish to introduce this drug as evidence that the prisoner is a confirmed addict, morally irresponsible under addiction. This is a package of so-called bracky weed, 
a vile and noxious substance found in his possession. It has alkaloids no more harmful than nicotine, Feldman stated sharply. Do you contend that you find the taste pleasing? Blaine asked. It's bitter, but I've gotten used to it. I've tasted it, the magistrate said. Evidence accepted. Two deductions, one for irregularity of presentation. Doc shrugged and sat back. He'd tested his rights and found what he expected. It was hard to see now how he had ever accepted such procedure. Jake must be right. They'd been in power too long and were making the mistake of taking the velvet glove off the iron fist and flailing about for the sheer pleasure of power. It dragged on while he became a greater and greater monster on the record. But finally it was over, and the magistrate turned to Feldman. You may present your defense. I ask complete freedom of expression, Doc said formally. The magistrate nodded. This is a closed court, permission granted. The recording will be scrambled. The last bit ruined most of the purpose Doc had in mind, but it was too late to change. He could only hope that some one of the medical men present would remember something of what he said. I have nothing to say for myself, he began. It would be useless. But I had to do what I did. There's a plague outside. I've studied that plague, and I have knowledge which must be used against it. He sat down in three minutes. It had been useless. Blaine arose with a smile still plastered on his face. We, of course, recognize the existence of a new contagion, but I believe we have established that this is one disseminated by the prisoner himself and probably not directly contagious. There have been many cases of fanatics ready to destroy humanity to eliminate those they hate. Now surely the prisoner has himself left no question of his attitude. He asserts he has knowledge and skill greater than the entire medical research staff. He has attempted to intimidate us by threats. He is clearly psychopathic, and dangerously so. The prosecution rests. The guards took Doc into the anteroom, where he was supposed to hear nothing that went on, but their curiosity was stronger than their discretion, and the door remained a trifle ajar. The magistrate began the discussion. The case seems firm enough. It's fortunate Dr. Ryan acted so quickly, with some of the people getting nervous. Perhaps it might be wise to publicize our verdict. My thought exactly, Blaine agreed. If we show Feldman is responsible and that medical is eliminating the source of the infection, it might have a stabilizing effect. Let's hope so. The sentence will have to be death, of course. We can't let such a rebellious psychopath live. But this needs something more, it seems. You've prepared a recommendation, I suppose. There was the case of Albrecht Delier, Blaine suggested. Something like that should have good publicity impact. It struck Doc that they sounded as if they believed themselves, as the witch-burners had believed in witches. He was sweating when the guards led him before the bench. The magistrate rolled a pen slowly across his fingers, and his eyes raked Feldman. Pariah Daniel Feldman, you have been found guilty on all counts. Furthermore, your guilt must be shared by that entire section of Mars known as the Villages. Therefore, the entire section shall be banned and forbidden any and all services of the medical lobby for a period of one year. Sir Magistrate! One of the members of the Southport Hospital staff was on his feet. Sir Magistrate, we can't cut them off completely. We must, Dr. Harkness. 
I appreciate the fine humanitarian tradition of our lobby which lies behind your protest, but at such a time as this the good of the body politic requires drastic measures. Why not see me after court, and we can discuss it then? He turned back to Feldman, and his face was severe. The same education which has produced such fine young men as Dr. Harkness was wasted on you and perverted to endanger the whole race. No punishment can equal your crimes, but there is one previously invoked for a particularly horrible case, and it seems fitting that you should be the fourth so sentenced. Daniel Feldman, you are sentenced to be taken into space beyond planetary limits, together with all materials used by you in the furtherance of your criminal acts. There you shall be placed into a spacesuit containing sufficient oxygen for one hour of life, and no more. You and your contaminated possessions shall then be released into space to drift there through all eternity as a warning to other men. This sentence shall be executed at the earliest possible moment, and Dr. Christina Ryan is hereby commissioned to observe such execution. And may God have mercy on your soul. End recording. Chapter 10 of Badge of Infamy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Badge of Infamy by Lester Del Rey. Read by Stephen H. Wilson of Prometheus Radio Theater. www.prometheusradiotheater.com. 10. Execution The hours of waiting were blurred for Doc. There were periods when fear clogged his throat and left him gasping with the need to scream and beat his cell walls. There were also times when it didn't seem to matter, and when his only thoughts were for the villages and the plague. They brought him the papers where he was painted as a monster beside whom Jack the Ripper and Albrecht Delier were gentle amateurs. They were trying to focus all fear and resentment on him. Maybe it was working. There were screaming crowds outside the jail, and the noise of their hatred was strong enough to carry through even the atmosphere of Mars. But there were also signs that the lobby was worried, as if afraid that some attempt might still be made to rescue him. He'd looked forward to the trip to the airport as a way of judging public reaction, but apparently the lobby had no desire to test that. The guards led him up to the roof of the jail, where a rocket was waiting. The landing space was too small for one of the station shuttles, but a little Northport-Southport shuttle was parked there after what must have been a difficult set-down. The guards tested Doc's manacles and forced him into the shuttle. Inside, Chris was waiting, carrying an official automatic. There was also a young pilot, looking nervous and unhappy. He was muttering under his breath as the guards locked Doc's legs to a seat and left. All right, Chris ordered. Up ship. I tell you, we're overweight with you. I wasn't counting on three for the trip, the pilot protested. The only thing that will get this into orbit with the station is Faith. I'm loaded with every drop of fuel she'll hold, and it still isn't enough. That's your problem, Chris told him firmly. You've got your orders, and so have I. Up ship. If she had her own worries about the shuttle, she didn't show it. 
Chris had never been afraid to do what she felt she should. The pilot stared at her doubtfully and finally turned back to his controls, still muttering. The shuttle lifted sluggishly, but there was no great difficulty. Doc could see that there was even some fuel remaining when they slipped into the tube at the orbital station. Chris went out, and other guards came in to free him. "'So long, Dr. Feldman,' the pilot called softly as they led him out. Then the guards shoved him through the airlock into the station. Fifteen minutes later, he was locked into one of the cabins of the Iroquois, with all his possessions stacked beside him. He grinned wryly. As an honest worker on the Navajo, he'd been treated like an animal. Now, as a human fiend, he was installed in a luxury cabin of the finest ship in the fleet, with constant spin to give a feeling of weight and more room than the entire tube crew had known. He roamed the cabin until he found a little collapsible table. He set the electron microscope up on that and plugged it in. It seemed a shame that good equipment should be wasted along with his life. He wondered if they would really throw it out into space with him. Probably they would. He pushed a button on the call board over the table and asked for the steward. There was a long wait, as if the procedure were being checked with some authority. But finally he received a surly acknowledgment. Steward, what you want? How's the chance of getting some food? You're on first class. They could afford it, Doc decided. He wouldn't cost them much considering the distance he was going. Bring me two complete dinners, one Earth normal and one Mars normal. Okay, Feldman, but if you think you can suicide that way, you're wrong. You may be sick, but you'll still be alive when they dump you. A sharp click interrupted him. That's enough, steward. Captain Everett speaking, Dr. Feldman. You have my apologies. Until you reach your destination, you are my passenger and entitled to every consideration of any other passenger except freedom of movement through the ship. I am always available for legitimate complaints. Feldman shook his head. He'd heard of such men, but he'd thought the species extinct. The steward brought his food in a thoroughly chastened manner. He managed to find space for it and came to attention. Is that all, sir? For a moment, as the smell of real steak reached him, Doc regretted the fact that his metabolism had been switched. Then he shrugged. A little wouldn't hurt him, though there was no proper nourishment in it. He squeezed some of the gravy and bits of meat into one of his bottles, sticking to his purpose. Then he fell to on the rest. But after a few bites, it was queerly unsatisfactory. The seemingly unappealing Mars normal ragu suited his current tastes better, after all. Once the steward had cleared away the dishes, Doc went to work. It was better than wasting his time in dread. He might even be able to leave some notes behind. A gong sounded, and a red light warned him that acceleration was due. He finished with his bottles, put them into the incubator, and piled into his bunk, swallowing one of the tablets of Morphetol the ship furnished. Acceleration had ended, and a simple breakfast was waiting when he awoke. There was also a red flashing light over the call board. He flipped the switch while reaching for the coffee. Captain Everts, the speaker said. May I join you in your cabin? Come ahead, Feldman invited. He cut off the switch and glanced at the clock on the wall. There were less than eleven hours left to him. Everts was a man of forty, erect but not rigid. There was neither friendliness nor hostility in his glance. His words were courteous as Doc motioned toward the tray of breakfast. I've already eaten, thank you. He accepted a chair. 
His voice was apologetic when he began. This is a personal matter which I perhaps have no right to bring up, but my wife is greatly worried about this plague. I violate no confidence in telling you that there is considerable unease even on earth, according to messages I have received. The ship's physician believes Mrs. Everts may have the plague, but isn't sure of the symptoms. I understand you're quite the expert. Doc wondered about the physician. Apparently there was another man who placed his patients above anything else, though he was probably meticulous about obeying all actual rules. There was no law against listening to a pariah, at least. When did she have Selznick's migraine, he asked. About thirteen hours ago. We went through it together, shortly after having our metabolism switched during the food shortage of eighty-eight. Doc felt carefully at the base of the captain's skull. The swelling was there. He asked a few questions, but there could be no doubt. Both of you must have it, Captain, though it won't mature for another year. I'm sorry. There's no hope, then. Doc studied the man, but Everts wasn't the sort to dicker even for his life. Nothing that I've found, Captain. I have a clue, but I'm still working on it. Perhaps if I could leave a few notes for your physician. It was Everts' turn to shake his head. I'm sorry, Dr. Feldman. I have orders to burn out your cabin when you leave. But thank you. He got to his feet and left as quickly and directly as he had entered. Doc tore up his notes bitterly. He paced his cabin slowly, reading out the hours while his eyes lingered on the little bottle of cultures. At times the fear grew in him, but he mastered it. There was half an hour left when he began opening the little bottles and making his films. He was still not finished when steps echoed down the hall, but he was reasonably sure of his results. The bug could not grow in earth-normal tissue. Three men entered the room. One of them, dressed in a spacesuit, held out another suit to him. The other two began gathering up everything in the cabin and stowing it neatly into a sack designed to protect freight for a limited time in vacuum. Doc forced his hands to steadiness with foolish pride and began climbing into the suit. He reached for the helmet, but the man shook his head, pointing to the oxygen gauge. There would be exactly one hour's supply of oxygen when he was thrown out, and it still lacked five minutes of the deadline. They marched him down the hallway to meet Everts coming toward them. There were still three minutes left when they reached the airlock, with its inner door already open. The space-suited man climbed into it and began strapping down so that the rush of air would not sweep him outward when the other seal was released. Doc had saved one bracky weed. Now he raised it to his lips, fumbling for a light. Everett stepped forward and flipped a lighter. Doc inhaled deeply. Fear was thick in every muscle, and he needed the smoke desperately. Then he caught himself. Better change your metabolism back to Earth normal, Captain Everts, he said, and his voice was so normal that he hardly recognized it. Everett's eyes widened briefly. The man bowed faintly. Thank you, Dr. Feldman. It was ridiculous impossible. And yet there was a curious relief at the formality of it. It was like something from a play, too unreal to affect his life. Everts nodded to the man holding the helmet. Doc dropped his bracky weed and felt the helmet snap down. A hiss of oxygen reached him, 
and the suit ballooned out. There was no gravity. The two men handed him up easily to the one in the airlock, while the inner seal began to close. There was still ten seconds to go, according to the big chronometer that had been installed in the lock. The spaceman used it in tying the sack of possessions firmly to Doc's suit. A red light went on. The man caught Doc and held him against the outer seal. The red light blinked. Four seconds, three, two. There was a sudden, heavy, thudding sound, and the Iroquois seemed to jerk sideways slightly. The spaceman's face swung around in surprise. The red light blinked and stayed on. Zero. The outer seal snapped open, and the spaceman heaved. Air exploded outwards, and Doc went with it. He was alone in space, gliding away from the ship with oxygen hissing softly through the valve and ticking away his life. End Recording